Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, it is Palm Sunday, which means that this is the final Sunday of Lent, if you can believe that. And as most of you know, for the past six weeks, we have been in our Lenten series entitled Resilient Faith. In this series, we have looked at how God wants to use the wilderness to shape our character and our faith, if we will partner with Him in that work. Uh, We've seen how we must resist evil and temptation if we're going to overcome hardships and live into God's best for us. We've also reflected on the necessity of biblical lament and building resilient faith and how important it is to know who you are in Christ if we're going to trust God and grow in the wilderness. And then last week we saw how being humble and teachable is essential to getting what is to be gotten from the wilderness. Otherwise, pride and arrogance will harden us to the lessons that God wants to teach us. That's why we said it's the humble hearts that grow. Which brings us to the final sermon in our six-week series, a message I've entitled, Determination Plus Adaptation Equals Resilience. Now think about that for just a moment. I'd like to close our series this morning thinking about how determined disciples, that is, disciples who know who they are and understand their calling, why you are here, who are willing to adapt and change, these disciples are those who develop resilient faith. They are the ones who will grow in the wilderness, survive the sabotage and thrive on the other side of the trials that they are experiencing. And so this equation, determination plus adaptation equals resilience, communicates this truth. Pray with me. Father, we ask now that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. Lord, whatever distractions there are in our hearts and our minds this morning, we pray that you would squelch those. We rebuke Satan the principalities and powers of evil that would seek to rob us of the gospel, keep your truth from finding a resting place in our hearts. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us now. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, once again, it's Palm Sunday, and earlier in the service, uh, you heard Mark's telling of what is known as Jesus' triumphal entry. You can find a version of this story in each of the four Gospels. So what is going on here, right? What is this event all about? And why do we remember it on the church calendar? I mean, we even have little palm branches this morning to remember this. So, well, here's why. It's because 
This day marks the beginning of the end for Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, He has been to Jerusalem many times before, but this will be the last time. After three years of healing, uh, of exorcisms, of preaching and teaching and challenging the political and religious leaders of his day, he now enters his final week on the earth. Jesus is loved by some, even thought to be the long-awaited Messiah, but he's hated by others, as he was thought to be a threat to Judaism, uh, to the ruling order, and to the peace of Rome, what is known as the Pax Romana. And Jesus knows this. In fact, the Gospels tell us that he knows he is coming to Jerusalem to die. And it's as if Jesus has it all planned out, how he arrives, what he will do when he's there, what he will say, how he will lay his life down as a ransom and be the scapegoat for all of our sins. I hope you'll tune into the Good Friday liturgy. I'll be talking about this a bit, Jesus as scapegoat. It becomes the scapegoat for us all, so we don't need to scapegoat any longer. As we see on Palm Sunday, Jesus has some creative ideas and prophetic, what we call prophetic theater in mind for the crowds in this final week. Outside the city is what we see today, and then later in the temple when he clears it and calls for its end. So he begins by riding into Jerusalem, not on a conquering war horse. This is what they would have expected of Messiah. In fact, some scholars say that probably about the time Jesus comes riding on a donkey, Pontius Pilate is coming in through an opposite gate on his war horse and his legion. Now, you think about this contrast this morning. Yet still people hail Jesus as Messiah, as the son of David. They express this belief in their chant, Hosanna, which literally means save us. Save us, son of David. Clearly, this is messianic. And so they also laid their cloaks down on the road, and they waved palm branches. The waving of palm branches was something the Jews had done 200 years earlier after what is known as the Maccabean Revolt. You see, when the Jewish people threw off the rule of the Seleucid Empire, which was what was left over after Alexander the Great, when he had passed, the lands were divided up. So the Greeks continued to rule this way, oppressing the Jews. So the Jewish people were free until the Romans began their occupation about 65 years before Jesus was born. So, in other words, they are hoping that Jesus will free them once again. It's amazing that any of this is allowed to actually go on as they're hailing him as Messiah, waving the palm branches, but the Romans allow it at least for a little while until Jesus is crucified. That's because Jesus was not what anyone expected Messiah to be. You've heard me say this a lot. As we saw in his temptations by rejecting worldly kingdom power, and we can hear it in his parables on the kingdom, 
We can hear it in his teachings on loving our enemies. Jesus did not come to establish the kingdom of God by trusting in power over, but rather by embracing power under and Calvary-like love. And it's unfortunate that we as Christians think that this is just some tactic so Jesus can make a fast track to the cross and die for our sins. But miss taking Jesus seriously on what he reveals to us about God and how he's called us to live too. So ultimately, he revealed the power of his co-suffering love. A love that can actually change hearts and minds. You see, power over can't do this. In fact, you ever notice that power over and telling people what they can and can't do actually makes things worse? But yet we still believe in this power. We still believe in the power of redemptive violence to solve our problems. Jesus is trying to show us a way out. Jesus is trying to show us a better way of dealing with our sin and dealing with the problems and the systemic problems of the world by dying on a cross for our sins. Notice, despite the difficulties that Jesus faced in trying to persuade his closest followers of his identity and his vision for the kingdom, despite the suffering that he would have to endure as he confronted the unjust systems of both temple and empire, Jesus' determination is obvious to anyone who reads the Gospels. He wasn't stopping, he wouldn't be deterred, and he wouldn't be knocked off course. Not by the devil in the wilderness, not by the Pharisees in the synagogues, not by his friend Peter, his friend Peter, who said, Jesus, we won't let you go to Jerusalem, nor by Pilate who said, don't you know I have the power to crucify you? Still, Jesus kept going. Jesus was determined. And this was all very puzzling to his disciples, as it is to us, this way of the cross. What is Jesus saying? What does he mean the Son of Man must suffer and die in order to defeat evil? What what is that all about? Why is he doing this? After all, what good can can he do if he's dead? You can't blame these guys for thinking this. What kind of Messiah is that? What kind of kingdom is that? And like so many things that Jesus said and did, his disciples met Jesus' determination with some level of misunderstanding and confusion, which is why there were several times that Jesus said something like this. You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. You may recall that Jesus said this after he had shared the Last Supper with his disciples. You remember that? We remember this on Monday, Thursday. As he was playing the role of a servant and washing their feet. We just miss how scandalous this really, really was. Jesus is taking the position of the lowest person in society and washing the dirty feet of his disciples. And they couldn't believe it. (laughs) Peter even tried to stop him. Might make some spiritual point. If you're going to wash my feet, go ahead and wash my whole body because I am unclean, Jesus. And Jesus said, you'll get this later, guys. 
I have to do this. You'll get this later. You'll understand later on. And if you continue to read the New Testament with the book of Acts and onward, you can see that Jesus' determination and his patience, even trusting that the Spirit would grow his disciples when he was gone, eventually pays off, right? Because we know the rest of the story. It's Friday, but Sunday is coming, as the black pastor said. They, they eventually will understand. Post-resurrection, the Holy Spirit will empower the disciples and the early church to have the same sort of determination of identity and purpose, as well as the ability to adjust once they realized what needed to change in their thinking, and the fortitude to adapt to the shifting culture around them so that the church could grow, and that the gospel of the kingdom could be known in their communities and ultimately the world. Folks, this is resilience. This is resilience. And it's why the early church thrived despite the opposition that they faced. You know, the Apostle Paul really is the epitome of this. I think this former Pharisee and persecutive Christians embodies the early church's willingness to change, adapt, and press on with a kingdom vision and carry on Christ's call to make disciples. Think about this. Just look at the mindset that Paul had as it's reflected in his words to the house church in Corinth. Some of you are familiar with these words. He says this, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Look, don't miss what Paul is communicating to the church. This isn't simply his approach to evangelism, which is usually when we hear this read and talked about. Now, this is reflective of Paul's attitude, his determination and his willingness to adjust his thinking and adapt to the world around him. This is what a lot of the Jewish Christians just didn't get or understand, how Paul was willing to adapt and adjust even becoming like a non-Jew to reach people for the gospel of Christ. And this has implications uh, for us as individual disciples as well as implications for us as a congregation of disciples on mission together. So let's consider how this mindset, fueled by the growth of the first disciples, how it was fueled and it fueled this movement that led uh, to the propagation of the gospel. And it may be best described, really, as a wildfire of the Holy Spirit. We had a, a recent wildfire in Dillsburg, a lot of you know, right? And we see lots of wildfires in California. And if you can think of that, a wildfire of a movement of the Holy Spirit that cannot be controlled or contained. In his book, Resilient Faith, how the early Christian third way changed the world. You can imagine how excited I was when I saw this book come out. The professor of theology at Whitworth University, Gerald Sitzer, makes the case that it was the resilient faith of the early church that led to the explosive growth of Christianity and its kingdom impact on the empire. And he says, we need to look back at the example of the early church so that we can move forward 
with resilience in a post-Christian, increasingly secular American empire today. See, many of us have grown up in Christendom, and so we're really unnerved by the shifting of culture. And I get it. I experienced this too. Uh, but, you know, what, what the author of the book here, Gerald Sitzer, would say is we are actually moving more to an environment that the early church would have been familiar with. And so we have some things that we can learn from them if we're going to thrive in a new setting. And so here are a few takeaways from his book. Sitzer says a number of things, and I'll just summarize it with some bullet points here. He says they created a third way, which he calls a race, like a race of people. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Think of the church as a different race of people. They created a third-way race or new family through the church community. What's at the heart of this is this confession that Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. Jesus is king. Jesus is master. Jesus is calling the shots. Jesus is the new sheriff in town. And this impacted their, their daily, their moral, and their political decisions, how they viewed the world. This alerted them to the extremes within society, and they sought to avoid the extremes. They, they, their living challenged and subverted the mainstream of society and culture, Sitzer would say. Their values, their sexual ethics, their view of women, which was elevated, their, their view of the elderly and those that were usually just cast out and cast aside, the widows, their entire social order was changed. When you came to the table of Christ, everyone was equal, right? We hear this kind of thing in Galatians 3.28. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free, man, woman, right? We are all equal regardless of your position, regardless of your status, regardless of your income, we are all equal in Christ. This was radical in the first century. And they did this through house churches. They did this by investing in personal spaces where they shared lives with other people who had bought into this vision. They saw themselves, you could say, as Sitzer says, a nation within a nation. You know, if the, if the evangelical church would stop its infatuation for worldly political power and trying to make America Christian, we could get this. Amen? Now, I'm sure maybe say amen or oh me, right? Amen? Amen. Another point he makes, they had to improve, or rather to improvise and learn to be creative and resourceful with less. I mean, after all, Christianity was an illegal religion. You couldn't practice it, not out in public anyways, or if you did, there would be consequences. They had no buildings, at least not until the fourth century. They had no social standing. They had no political power. They had no special privileges. They were mostly poor, and they shared their resources with all of those in need. They found a way to make a little do a lot because they were fully committed. It is amazing what you can do, even with a small group of powerless people, when you come together with determination and adaptation. What do you get? 
resilience. They also embrace liturgical worship and countercultural practices that help them live in the redemptive story. And you can't do this one hour on Sunday morning. I mean, you think about all of the forces that shape you every day of every week, whether it's what you listen to on the radio when you go to work, it's your rituals, it's your habits, it's what you watch on Netflix, what you binge watch, it, it's, it's who you talk to, it's where you go, even during a pandemic. It's the, it's the American liturgy that's constantly put before us. When we go to ball games, when we start every day at school, we are told who is the power. We are told who you pledge your allegiance to. We are told this is what you should think. This is what you should believe. This is what, where you should go, how you should think, how you should view the world, how you should lump people into categories and forget the individual. This is what the world does. And if you don't have a counter liturgy to that, what happens? I mean, all you got to do is just put it on cruise control, go through life, and you're being shaped and formed by the world. This is why Paul said in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, do not be conformed, what? To the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You cannot do that without intentionality. And we have to, folks, and I know it's hard, but we have to form spiritually formative practices. We have to form our character. We have to form our faith by living in to the liturgy of the church. I've totally gone off my notes. Let me find where I was here. It happens. Yes, they gave themselves the formative power of worship. It wasn't just about getting information. That's what we do this really well in Western society, don't we? It's like, let's just read a book. I'm a disciple. No, that can help, but that's not how it works. It wasn't just about getting information. It was about adopting meaningful religious practices at home, developing practices that become habits or like second nature to their church community by immersing themselves in God's redemptive story in his purposes, culminating in Jesus, by embodying that story through meaningful liturgies that countered the world's liturgies. They become, because of this, a transformational force. Don't you want that? I mean, doesn't that sound exciting? A nation within a nation, a transformational force, a liturgical people that doesn't let the world shape them. They shape the world. Last point here I'll make is, sister says, they thrive by patiently making disciples and putting their faith openly on display. He writes this, discipleship is not for a few special Christians, but for all Christians. Not an option, but an expectation. Not an addition to conversion, but an essential feature of conversion. I mean, they had high expectations. When, when someone showed an interest in confessing Jesus, they had to go through a three-year rigorous catechesis process. Not only to teach you what the truth is and to shape your worldview and your thinking, to, but to make sure you're serious about it. Because in that climate and context, it could get you killed. So you had to take it seriously. Just as Alan Kreider said in his book, uh, he wrote a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Their key to success was the slow, patient, catechizing, and formation of serious disciples. 
And some of us are a part of that process. Some of us are doing that. And more of the church will need to do that if we're going to have any impact on the world around us. And it's these components, it's these components of their faith and their discipleship that enable them to adapt and grow despite the godlessness of the empire and the daily threats to their well-being as followers of the crucified and risen Jesus. It makes me think uh, of this quote. Maybe some of you have heard this before. It is not the most intellectual of the species that survives. It is not the strongest that survives. But the species that survives is the one that is able best to adapt and adjust to the changing environment in which it finds itself. I believe that's where we find ourselves in 2021, living in a pluralistic postmodern American society where the pandemic has accelerated post-Christendom and the widening gap between authentic Christian values and virtues and the allure of secular humanism. And a lot of Christians, unfortunately, are buying into this. I mostly see this happening with Christians like myself who grew up in right-wing, extreme right-wing, far-right-wing, fundamentalist Christianity. And they don't want to be like that anymore, but they don't realize that they're being allured into a secular humanist worldview. We have to be intentional, and the formation of the church will do that for us. Discipleship will do that. Can't leave it to the world. We know what they'll do. And so while that might be unnerving to many of us, as you think about this, where we are today, we should view these changes as an opportunity for God to purge the church, as Jesus did in his own ministry after he said some hard things. You remember that? There's one time where Jesus said, hey, if you want to follow me, you have to do what? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And you know what kind of response Jesus, Jesus knew what kind of response he would get after that, but he was testing the crowds. A lot of people just packed up and left. He turned around there. His 12 were. He said, are you going to leave me too? He said, hey, we don't always understand what you say and what you mean by what you say, but we've left everything to follow you. We're not going anywhere, Jesus. We'll stick around to the end, right? Because after all, you keep saying things like right now you don't understand. Later you'll understand. So we're going to trust you. Separating. This separates the nominal Christians from true disciples. For those who just want to come sit, be entertained, and consume, and those who want to engage in the gospel work together. This is what brings about a fresh, new, authentic, fresh, new, authentic expression of a church that leads others to the God who looks like Jesus. Hallelujah. But before that can happen, we must come to terms with where we are, what has happened, and if we're going to press on and discover new life on the other side of it all. And it makes me think of the movie Gravity, starring Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. Maybe you've seen this movie. Bullock, the main character, plays a scientist. Her name is Dr. Ryan Stone who is recruited by NASA for a special mission to work on the Hubble telescope, which is orbiting the planet, as you know. 
And during a spacewalk, Mission Control in Houston warns the space shuttle's crew about a rapidly expanding cloud of space debris accidentally caused by the Russians after they shot down a defunct spy satellite. There you go. And they, they then order the crew to return uh, to the shuttle so they can return to Earth immediately. But before the astronauts can return to the shuttle, high-speed debris strikes the shuttle and the Hubble destroying them both and sending Dr. Stone and Kalaski uh, tumbling through space. The rest of the movie is about them fighting to survive and return home. But the real focus of the story is Dr. Stone's own inner struggle as you learn that she had recently experienced the loss of a child and that she really wasn't living nor did she know if she wanted to continue to live. I mean, if for us, if we were parents, you can imagine that. It's an intense movie with stunning visuals, but with an even greater story. The story of a woman who decides that she must grieve and let go so that she can experience a new birth and learn to live again. And if you've not seen it, I recommend that you watch it. But you think, well, what point are you making here? Well, take a look at this quote. This is from business leader Ronald Heifetz. He says, people do not resist change, per se. People resist loss. Think about that. People don't resist change. People resist loss. What's so hard about change? Ron Heifetz says that it's disappointment and loss. For some of us, we've experienced a, a great deal of disappointment and loss this year, and maybe at some point further back in the past. And because of that, it's hard to let go and move on. For others, it's the fear of further loss. I mean, some of you can relate to that. Every day you wake up and you wonder, things are really good. What am I going to lose next? <laughs> when do the troubles come? Something that hasn't happened yet, but it's bound to happen at some point. We live in that fear of loss. So we cling to the past, or we cling to the present, afraid of what might come with the change. You, you know where I'm at? Is anybody else feeling me this morning? What I hope is becoming clear with this message, change is inevitable. Do, do you... Do you realize that? For some of us who have some more years behind us, you've seen it. Change is inevitable. You can't stop change. And so keeping your focus and remaining determined about who you are and where you're going as you adapt is necessary if you're going to experience the life of Christ in you and our church. Otherwise, you just become an embittered, cynical soul, afraid to trust anybody afraid to believe in the future and to hope and to live as what I like to call hopeful realists. So there's no way around it. Only those who adapt with the change will survive. And I know this can be hard, and Jesus, thankfully, he knows that too. He knows that too. Just think about what Jesus said to his disciples after they finally began to understand that Jesus was going to leave them. The Lord knew their hearts were heavy. You get that sense when you read the Gospel of John. He, he could tell they were troubled in their spirit these last hours. And, and so he sought to comfort them with these words. 
John chapter 14, verse 25, 27. He said, all this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. I'm going away, guys. But get this, I'm still going to be with you. You say, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? You can imagine what they were thinking, right? Remember, you don't understand this now, but you will later. And so Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Bob Dylan was right. The times, they are changing. It's true. But you can be sure of this, church. Jesus says, I will be with you. Right? I will be with you. You will experience me in a new way for a new day. So, trust me, and I will show you. But until then, live in my peace. Live in my peace. Don't be afraid. Certainly, Jesus knows what it's like to experience loss and for his disciples to want to keep looking back or cling to the present. But it's as Jesus said elsewhere, you can't plow straight rows if you keep looking back. You can't join him in the now, and you can't follow him in the future if you're stuck in the past. Again, as you might expect, the Apostle Paul understood this, and listen to what he said to the house church in Philippi. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. He's saying, I haven't arrived. Don't think I've got this all figured out. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal. What's the goal? To win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, don't give a Gnostic reading of this passage, folks. Paul's not talking about so I can then fly away one day. That's not what he means by heavenward. Heaven is coming where? To earth. Hey, we just prayed that early in the service, so I hope it's true. Those are Jesus' words to us. This is the idea that the kingdom is coming. And Paul is working, praying, sweating, bleeding for the kingdom to come. And in this way, we've been called heavenward. Brothers and sisters, this is resilient faith. And it's available to all of us. If we will submit ourselves to God's program in the wilderness, if we will resist evil and temptation, if we will lament and let go, if we will learn who we are in Christ and what He's called us to do, and then with determination and a willing spirit to adapt and move with change, we will, as Paul said in Ephesians 4, grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ, from the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, every member of the body of Christ, and builds and grows itself up in love as each part does its work. This is who we were created to be 
as disciples. This is what God wants for Grantham Church. Amen. Amen. Finally, here are a few questions for reflection and response. I'm just going to ask these questions and invite you to consider them where you are. If you're watching at home, ask the Lord to speak to you as you think about these questions. Number one, are you determined? Are you determined to follow Jesus and grow resilient faith? Number two, what is keeping you from adapting to change? And number three, how is God calling you to let go and press on toward the goal? Jesus, you are the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. So, Lord, we ask that you would give us your faith this morning. The resilient faith we see in you and in the early church set us free from those things that are holding us back. Help us to heal. Help us to let go. Help us to grow. Holy Spirit, we invite you to work in each of our hearts and in the life of our congregation. Give us determination. Help us to adapt. Make us resilient, Lord. And God, prepare us for life and living on the other side of the wilderness so that we might experience more of the kingdom in us and around us for the sake of the gospel and the glory of your name. Go with us now into Holy Week and continue to teach us about your love and your power to save. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. All of God's people said.